Well, it's the second Sunday night of the month, and uh, as we mentioned, we were going to do something a little different on the second Sunday night of the month. We've had questions that have been submitted. The boxes are finally up. They're bolted into the wall, I believe, and so they're not going to fall down again. And uh, if you have any questions that you want discussed during these services when we do this, please feel free to fill out a sheet of paper and put it up there uh, in that box. And on some Sunday nights, I'm sure we'll be able to deal with several. Others, there may be some questions a little more difficult. We take a whole sermon to deal with some of those questions, I'm sure. But either way, we hope to do this every second Sunday night of the month. Just deal with questions that members of the congregation have. We've got three of them we're going to be dealing with tonight. Before we get to that, though, let me remind you that tonight, being October the 12th, as was pointed out two weeks ago, this is the deadline. If you have any men that you're interested or you believe are qualified for the office of deacon, to have spoken with them, and to submit their names to the elders. And so if you're wanting to mention any names to the elders, make sure you do that tonight, because come tomorrow, that part of the process will be closed. Remember, the elders are going to take about two weeks to meet with the men, to make sure that those whose names have been submitted are willing to serve, and that the elders can agree to work with them, and they can work with the elders. And then two weeks from today, uh, those uh, men, their names will be submitted to the congregation for you to talk with and um, Two weeks following that, all things going well, we'll have some more deacons appointed here in the congregation. Tonight we have three different questions that we're going to be dealing with. In fact, they are very different questions. We're going to go from uh, the the ethereal realm of the spiritual world on down to to modern issues, uh, the practical hands-on value. We're going to be looking at three different questions. And I hope that what we do tonight will be beneficial to you. Let me read to you the first question that we're going to do. And... uh, these questions are not are not answered in any particular order except for the order in which I received them. So don't uh, please don't make anything out of the order. It's just somebody asked and they got theirs first, so they get to answer first. Question number one: Is the devil an omnipresent being? If not, how does evil seem to be everywhere? Let me begin by pointing out: Whenever we as finite creatures begin talking about infinite concepts such as omnipresent, which of course means present everywhere, at all times. When we finite creatures start talking about infinite things, we need to just automatically understand that we're going to hit a wall, because we are finite, and so we can't fully understand infinite concepts. We can work at them as as best as we can, and we can have some understanding, but we need to recognize we're going to hit a wall somewhere. Secondly, When we talk about the devil and his nature, we need to remember that we're dealing with somebody who is a spiritual being. The devil does exist. He is there. He is real, just as you and I are real, just as the Father, Son, and the Spirit are real. But he is not of the same nature as you and I are. He is a spiritual being. Having said that, we understand that the Word of God was not given to explain to us everything about the spiritual realm. Now, the Bible does tell us lots of things about the spiritual realm. We come in contact with spiritual things, angels, the devil, of course, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, in the Word of God, miracles that took place. In the book of Daniel, we read of things that that demonstrate that there's something going on in the spiritual realm behind all of what's going on here, what we see in the physical realm. But, God's Word wasn't given to explain all of that to us. And so, once again, what we find is that there's probably going to be gaps in our answers as we deal with any of those kind of questions. However, 
I do believe that we can at least to some degree answer this question about whether or not the devil is omnipresent. And let me just show you a verse that in my mind, we, we can look at lots of verses and lots of things, lots of concepts, and we can get very deep. But let me just show you one verse that in my mind helps answer this question, is the devil omnipresent? Matthew chapter 25 and verse 41. In Matthew chapter 25 and verse 41, here, remember the parable, as Jesus is talking about judgment, talking about what's going to happen to the righteous and what's going to happen to the wicked. And in Matthew chapter 25 and verse 41, Jesus said, Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. You may ask, how on earth does this answer the question? Well, as you look here, what you'll notice is that at some point, all those who are unfaithful to God, as well as the devil and his angels, are going to be confined into the everlasting fire. What that means is the devil must not be omnipresent. Because if the devil were omnipresent, that is able to be everywhere, at all points, at all times, there'd be no way to confine him to this place of punishment. His presence, therefore, must in some way be limited. Now, what are all the limits? I don't know. What are the extent of the devil's presence completely? I don't know. What abilities and powers does he have as a, as a spiritual being? I don't know. The Bible just doesn't tell us. But what I do know is that the devil is not of the same nature as God. He is not the same as the divine being who is omnipresent. And I think there's some comfort we can take from that because if in fact Satan had the same nature as God, then we would not necessarily know who's going to win in the end, would we? So we can have comfort that God wins because we know that God is more powerful even than the devil. And so we have the second half of our question. If the devil is not omnipresent, why does it seem as though evil is everywhere? everywhere? Well, I think in one, one sense, Matthew 25, 41 helps answer that question as well. Notice that it talks about the devil and his angels. Now, don't make too much of that. Don't uh, look at that and say, oh, that demonstrates for certain that the devil and, and uh, all those who are with him used to be angels that have fallen from God's graces and mercy. The Bible doesn't tell us anything like that. The fact is, the Bible doesn't tell us where the devil came from, no matter what anyone tells you. Now, we can speculate based on some things the Bible does say, but it, it, doesn't, it just doesn't tell us where Satan came from. And when it says angels here, it's using that word in the, same, in the, in the most generic sense of messenger. So the devil and his messengers. But whatever that means about them is that the devil has someone who's helping him. He's got messengers that clearly are going to carry out part of his work as well. And so I think we can recognize that though the devil is not omnipresent, his messengers are certainly many and will help carry out his work. But additionally, also turn all the way back to the book of Genesis in chapter 3. I think we can find out why it is that evil is everywhere. And it seems that the devil is everywhere and his influence is everywhere by going all the way back to the beginning and looking at how Satan works in the garden. You'll remember in Genesis chapter 3, God had laid down the law for Adam and Eve and had told them what they were supposed to do and all out of the trees that they could eat and out of the one tree that they couldn't eat. And of course, in Genesis chapter 3, the serpent comes on the scene. Now, if you have any doubts, in Revelation chapter 12, it demonstrates that this serpent of old is, of course, the devil. 
In Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, the Scripture says, The serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. How was Eve tempted? Satan was present. There he was. In the form of a serpent, he came to her, and he tempted her. And so, of course, there was evil there now, because Satan, directly in the form of the serpent, came and tempted her. But notice what happens next. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6, the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, the tree desirable to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Where was the devil? I don't know. But the devil didn't have to be physically present for evil to now work on Adam. Because Eve had submitted to the temptation she now turned around and had the evil influence of Satan and used that influence to get Adam to sin. And so we recognize is that the devil doesn't have to be actually present for his influence to be there to cause evil. Here's another one. Look in Matthew 16. In Matthew chapter 16, this is just following Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and and Jesus claimed, saying to them that he was going to build his church and the gates of Hades would not prevail against it. Notice what he says, as uh, in beginning in verse 21. Uh, from that time, Jesus, this is Matthew 16:21. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. Was Jesus saying that Peter was in fact possessed by Satan? No. Was Jesus saying that, oh no, he'd been fooled. Peter was actually the manifestation of Satan. Absolutely not. What he was pointing out is that because of Peter's upbringing and in this world and this evil world and all the influence of sin, here was the time when Peter, not understanding the will of God, didn't understand what Jesus could do, but here was the devil's influence and turned around and now one of his closest, strongest disciples is an influence from Satan. That doesn't mean Satan was actually present. Where was he? I don't know. But what I do know is that it didn't have to actually literally be Satan there for the influence of evil and of temptation to be present. And so, is the devil an omnipresent being? I think we can say clearly that he's not. What are the limits of his presence? I don't know. What are the powers that he has regarding presence? I don't know. But he's not omnipresent. How does the evil seem to be everywhere? Well, because the fact is, from the very beginning, Satan brought sin to this world, and from that point on, Sin has continued on from person to person. And now we live in a world of folks who have submitted to Satan's will. And so Satan's influence is everywhere, no matter where his actual presence is. And so, I hope that helps in answering that question. Question number two. Would it be wrong for a group of Christians to gather their own money 
and build a pavilion on the back of the property here since the money was gathered separately from the contribution. Let me read the question again to you. Would it be wrong for a group of Christians to gather their own money and build a pavilion on the back of the property here since the money was gathered separately from the contribution? I believe this question stems specifically from a sermon that we had just a few weeks ago. You'll remember two sermons that we had. One was entitled, Why I'm a Member of the Church of Christ, and I talked about salvation being in Christ and why I wanted to be in His body. The second sermon that followed that up is Why I'm a Member of the Franklin Church. And that demonstrated issues of scriptural authority and the pattern in the New Testament regarding a local congregation and how we should work and how we should worship and the fact that this congregation is, is determined to submit only to God's Word. And within that sermon, one of the things we talked about was the fact that this congregation recognizes a distinction between the spiritual work which God has given a local congregation and secular social work which God has left up to individuals. Work that they might even do with one another because they're members of the same congregation and yet not something that we find in the New Testament that God has authorized the local church to provide and plan and pay for. We use it as an example on that day uh, what occurred yesterday. Remember, of course, that we had a work day. There was a day in which Members of this congregation, we're going to come and take care of this facility where we gather to worship God, going to do what we have to do in order to uh, keep up what God has blessed us with, to be able to gather here and accomplish His work of worship, teaching. And then there was also a, a gathering last night down at the park. I hated that I missed the work there. I, I, I told the brethren in Arkansas, I certainly appreciated them rescheduling that meeting for me. And so... Uh, but no, no, just kidding. Hated that we missed the work day, but I was able to make it to the park, and uh, what food was left was pretty good. But there was a distinction. What happened here in regards to this facility was something that was done as a work of the church, something the church was in charge of, uh, because that's what this facility is. This is the church's facility. We use it to accomplish the church's work. I believe that's authorized. Uh, but what, what we did last night was Christians getting together for social which is certainly something we should do. God has commanded us to spend time with one another. We can look through the New Testament and we can find that Christians spent time with one another doing secular and social things. But what we cannot find is that the church, the local congregation, was responsible to plan or provide or pay for those things. And you'll remember we noticed in Acts chapter 2, when the church was established in Acts chapter 2, that there was certainly a distinction between what the congregation did as a congregation gathering in one accord and what they did individually. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 46, from the very beginning of the church, we find continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Notice, that they were meeting with one accord in the temple every day. This congregation was having assemblies every day. And they met with one accord in the temple. But we also find that the individuals were doing some things separate and apart from that congregational assembly. Meeting from house to house. It says that they, yes, they did some spiritual things, but notice that this is where they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. This is something that was kept separate from the congregation's work. This is something that Christians did. And yes, they did it because they were members of the congregation together, but it wasn't something that the congregation was planning or providing or paying for. Notice also, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 
First Corinthians chapter 11 probably provides us the most definitive distinction between what the congregation does when it comes together to do the work of the congregation and what individuals might do. In First Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 20, Paul, rebuking the brethren there, says, Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Verse 22. Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. Here, folks, to turn the Lord's Supper into a common meal. And on top of that, they were also being greedy about it. But I want you to notice that as Paul talked to these brethren about how to participate in the Lord's Supper, which the congregation would do when it gathered together in one assembly, <coughs> he talked about the right mindset they should have. He talked about the fact that it's a memorial that they are supposed to participate in. He talked about them doing it in a worthy manner so that they wouldn't be guilty of the body and the blood. And then in verse 33, he said, Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I will set in order when I come. Notice he says, if you're eating because of hunger, to fulfill this secular social need of hunger, do it at home. That's not what we gather together as a church to do. That's not the church's work. And so there is a distinction there. He doesn't say, well, look, if you're too hungry, go ahead and eat some at home so that when you come to our big common meal, you won't be a pig. He doesn't say that. He tells them, if you're hungry, eat at home, because that's not what the meal we gather together to eat is all about. It's about remembering the death of our Savior. And so there was a distinction there. And so the question is asked. Just had to set that back up for those who weren't here to hear that sermon. Based on that, the question was asked then that we have here tonight. And that is, if this distinction is made, would it be wrong for a group of Christians to gather their own money and build a pavilion on the back of the property here since the money was gathered separately from the contribution? If this is an issue of keeping it away from the treasury of the church, could members, individuals, pull their funds, build something on the back of the property, and say, well, see, that was done separately from the church. It's not the church's work. It's all right. Well, I think... I think the question betrays the answer. Whose property is it? Why, it's the church's property, isn't it? How was this property paid for? Out of the church's treasure. And so, if we're going to build a pavilion on the back of this property, how can we claim that it was actually separate from the church? We're putting it on the church's property. Whose is it then once it's on there? belongs to the church, doesn't it? And so what we've now done is tried to sneak something in which essentially becomes just as wrong because we can't separate it from the work of the church. What was Paul's admonition? Paul's admonition was if you're hungry. He didn't say, well, build something else for the church to have. He said, go eat at home. If a group of Christians want to pull their money together and build a pavilion, do it on your own personal property. That's fine. However... Let's take that step further and just, just ask about that. Could a group of Christians pull their money separate from the church? Could you and I and a couple others decide that we wanted to put up a pavilion that Christians could use so that there would always be a place for them to get together? Uh, could, of course we could. It's our money. We can do what we want. If you want to put it on my, at my house, we can do that. But I do want to warn you to be very, very careful. 
Because when 10 or 15 or 20 or 25 or 30 or 40 or 50 of us get together and pull our money together and we built this pavilion and we now have a place where Christians can gather, let me ask you, who does it belong to? Who governs it? Who gets to decide how it's used? Will, will other people get to use it? Who gets to take precedence over that? If I move, do you have to buy my share out? How are we going to pass it down from generation to generation? I'll tell you what almost consistently will happen in this scenario is that we find out that there were some brethren who were trying to live by the letter of the law, but what they did is they built something that they always intended to belong and be run by the church. Because when we start answering those kind of practical questions, we're going to run into some problems. We're going to start trying to figure out how this is going to work, and eventually what's going to happen is, well, we'll just let the elders deal with that. And now, who's planning? Who's providing? Who's running? It's now just slipped into the hands of the church. And of course, we tried to convince ourselves that, well, this is actually not the work of the church, but really all we did was kind of uh, slyly create a second treasury that we tried to claim wasn't the church's treasury, but essentially it was us trying to provide something for the church that eventually is going to become the church's, and it's going to be a problem, eventually. Now, if you can answer all those practical questions, you can keep it separate from the church, that's fine with me. I don't, have a, I don't have a problem with that. You go ahead. It's your money. You do what you want. But I just want us to be aware of the slippery slope we're getting in. Because at best case scenario, you're going to end up with Christians who have hurt feelings because we're dealing with these issues of who gets precedence and what happens when I move and I want my money out of this investment. And then we just have Christians with hurt feelings. Worst case scenario, it's something that eventually, if not from us, but our kids, just brings into the church a distraction from the work of God. And we need to keep in mind, what is the church's work? The church's work is to teach the gospel, to hold the truth up. First Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, Paul told Timothy that I'm, I'm writing so you'll know how to conduct yourself in the household of God, which is the pillar and support of the truth. That is our job. Everything we do as a congregation should be focused toward holding up God's truth so people can see it. And brethren, when we get involved in all these other things, I know our society pushes us that way. There may be some here tonight who can't even understand why are we even asking this question that seems so silly. Well, I'll tell you why. Because when a congregation becomes distracted from its work, then God's work doesn't get done. And we're here to do God's work. And that's what we need to be spending our time as a congregation doing, not getting distracted. I, I can tell you stories. When I was on the radio, I read a, uh, a news story of a place. Now, it, it, uh, I may not get the name right, but it was called the Assembly of God Barbecue. It was the name of the restaurant. Uh, and, or maybe it was the Church of God Barbecue. What had happened, it was really amazing. Uh, a church had started having these fellowship lunches every Sunday afternoon. And what they were really known for, the cooks there were known for their barbecue. And so you know what they decided to do to order to make a little money? They opened it up to the public, and they could come have it. And then they decided they could make a little bit more money, and they did it all week long. There's no church that meets there now, but I understand there's one of the best barbecue restaurants in the world, and it's still called by that name. I, it was amazing. That, that was a news story I read when I was doing the radio program. See, that's what can happen. When the church loses sight of what its real work is, it sounds kind of silly as we talk about civilians on the back of the building or out at the park, but what we got to do is make sure that we spend our time doing the work of God and not get distracted by all these other things. So, could 
Would it be wrong for a group of Christians to gather their own money and build a pavilion on the back of the property here since the money was gathered separately from the contribution? Yes, because the issue is not just contribution, but the fact that it's going to become the church as it is the church. It's on the church's property. It can't be separated from their work. But be careful if you try to do it someplace else, too. Make sure you've got all those questions answered. Question number three. Here we go. How do dinosaurs and prehistoric man fit in the Bible? Isn't this fun? Talk about the devil. We talk about pavilions on the back of the building. Now we're going to talk about dinosaurs and prehistoric men. How do they fit in with the Bible? Well, let me say from the very outset that I can't get very deep on this question because really to do that takes me out of my area of expertise and uh, pushes me into another person's area of expertise. So I, I can't... I can't just give you all kinds of information about this, but perhaps at some time down the road, uh, we could invite a, a, a man who, who, this is his area of expertise. I know some Don Patton, Buddy Payne, uh, could, perhaps we could have them in one time to answer some of these questions more fully. But let me point out three things to you to help us have some understanding regarding dinosaurs and prehistoric man. Number one, this is amazing. With each passing day, there is more and more evidence that dinosaurs and men lived on the earth together. Our evolutionist friends want us to believe that dinosaurs predated man by thousands, even millions of years, and went extinct because of some amazing colossal thing that happened millions and millions of years ago. But what we're finding out through scientific study, through archaeology, through scientific means, is that dinosaurs roamed on the earth while man was here. Uh, just as a few pieces of evidence, number one, they've actually found in Texas a trail of dinosaur footprints. That's amazing. You know how that's going to be made. There was some mud, and a dinosaur came running along, and it pressed down in there, and very quickly that hardened before it eroded away, and now there's a fossil there of a dinosaur footprint. But here's something that's even more amazing. Right in, now, keep in mind, now how long is it going to take? That's got to harden up pretty quick. Because otherwise, if you've got millions of years of rain on that and wind, it's going to erode away. Millions of years later, we're told by scientists, some man came running along across there, and that was still mud after millions and millions of years because his footprint is right there also, inside the dinosaur footprint, right along with it on the same way. You see, what that means is, is that within a matter of moments, a dinosaur came running across there, and a man came running across there. I don't know why the man would be following him, but that's what happened. Now, how does that happen? They must have lived there at the same time. Folks would say, oh, there's no way. Men couldn't live with dinosaurs. Dinosaurs would, uh, would, would uh, destroy them viciously. Well, no, look, we were, there's lots of vicious creatures on the earth that could eat you and I for lunch. Yet we live here, and they live here too, don't they? One of the other pieces of evidence that's, that's being found, it's only relatively recently that scientifically we've discovered the existence of dinosaurs. If dinosaurs were extinct billions and billions of years ago, and it wasn't until within the last century or so that we discovered their existence, would anybody before us know they were there? They couldn't. How would they? But here's amazing. Down in Central and South America finding figurines of dinosaurs that sure look a lot like what you'll see in National Geographic, or not National Geographic pictures, but the science magazines and, and the newspapers. Amazing. Pictures found inside caves of men and dinosaurs. How's that happening? Men saw them. They saw them. Somebody says, well, how on earth did they live together? I don't know. I imagine the men stayed clear of them. 
but what we're finding is that they live together. If you want more information on that, let me give you a website that you can check out. www.bible.ca Brother in Christ, Steve Rudd, up in Canada, runs that website. He's got all kinds of information. You can go to that website, and there's a link regarding dinosaurs and humans and a lot of the evidence that's out there for that. Number two, talking about dinosaurs. There are all kinds of things that I don't know about dinosaurs, but one thing I do know is I think I have a, a found a pretty good description of one in the Bible. I want you to look in the book of Job. In the book of Job... Beginning in chapter 40, and we're going to look at verse 15. As God is demonstrating to Job that Job needs to just keep his mouth shut and trust God and quit questioning him, God demonstrates his power. And he says, you know, Job, you question me, but you couldn't even handle dealing with the behemoth. Why on earth are you questioning me? And in Job chapter 40, beginning at verse 15, listen to this description. Look now at the behemoth, which I made along with you. He eats grass like an ox. He's a vegetarian. See now his strength is in his hips, and his, excuse me, his power is in his stomach muscles. He moves his tail like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are tightly knit. His bones are like beams of bronze, his ribs like bars of iron. He is the first of the ways of God. Only he who made him can bring near his sword. Surely the mountains yield food for him, and all the beasts of the field play there. He lies under the lotus trees in a covert of reeds and marsh. The lotus trees cover him with their shade, the willows of the brooks surround him. Indeed, the river may rage, yet he is not disturbed. He is confident, though the Jordan gushes into his mouth, though he takes it in his eyes, or one pierces his nose with a snare. Now, some folks believe this is a hippo. I've seen pictures of hippopotamus, and I have yet to see one who has a tail like a cedar. Some folks would say that this was some kind of alligator. And I've seen alligators. And I've yet to see one that eats grass like an ox. The fact is, when we start trying to figure out what this animal is based on animals that we know of today that are in existence, we can't find one that fits this description. But I'll tell you an animal we know of that sounds a lot, or looks a lot like this, Brontosaurus. A vegetarian dinosaur who had a big, huge tail, uh, ate vegetation, stick his head down in the water and let it gush past him and he would drink it, wouldn't hurt him. Big, big thing. You certainly, uh, while he wasn't a carnivore, he wouldn't come attacking you to try to eat you. You certainly wouldn't want to go attack him uh, because I'm sure he wouldn't appreciate that. See, it sounds very much like Job was well aware of a dinosaur. And that's phenomenal. And yet, that, that's what we see. Somebody says, well, how did they become extinct? I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. But how do all the other animals become extinct? The Bible doesn't tell us about those either. That's not what the Bible is all about. The Bible isn't here to tell us uh, about all the animals and how they became extinct. But what we do find is that dinosaurs fit in with the Word of God. There just aren't any today that we're aware of. Point number three, prehistoric man. How does prehistoric man fit in with the Bible? Well, in talking about prehistoric man, if you're talking about the pictures that you've seen in these supposedly scientific magazines that are going to give us man-like creatures that predate Homo sapiens, they don't fit in the Bible. Uh, but then really, they don't fit in science either. 
The problem is, is that men find little fragments of bone and then they create this big model that they have of a supposed prehistoric man, a man who predated Homo sapiens, and they say, see, there we've got, now we have this one little fragment of the skull and we're pretty certain this is what he looked like. Does that equal a prehistoric man? Does that equal some pre-early life form before us, before Homo sapiens? No. That equals a lot of imagination. The fact is, in the fossil realm, what has been found when it's been further tested and looked at is that they found a lot of really good fossils of animals, and they found a lot of really good fossils of men, and that's it. That's it. Now, through archaeology and through history, they've been able to study how early men lived, and we find in different places they lived very differently from, from how we live. Um, but that's it. That's all that's been found. Please keep in mind that even the scientists still speak of the missing link. Do you know why they call it the missing link? Because they don't have it. It's not there. The biggest piece of evidence they want, they still have to describe as missing because it does not exist. It's not out there. They've been searching, and they've been searching, and they've been searching. And the fact is, they're not just missing one link. They are missing millions of links. Because there's not one single solitary shred of evidence, period, of any type of animal evolving into any other type of animal. The only thing of evidence for this evolutionary theory is the fact that folks want to believe it. And so they've come up with this theory, and they've tried to make it fit what they found, and they just can't. There is absolutely no evidence, no missing links. There's, there's no fossils that have been proven to be some type of evolutionary chain to man. There's a lot of wishful thinking. My friend Don Patton says, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, he said that, well, when you start looking in the fossil record, You've got some good apes, and you've got some good men, and a lot of nonsense in between. And that's exactly what's out there. That's exactly what's out there. And so, his prehistoric man, if you're talking about studying of archaeology and looking at men who live very differently from us, sure, that's out there, but that's what we would expect. There were nomads. There were people who lived in caves. There were people who hadn't had fire yet, and they had to figure that out. They, they all lived there. If we're talking about some type of early life form, prior to man that developed into man, it's not there, and science hasn't found it. And please understand this, there is not one single solitary shred of scientific evidence that repudiates God's Word. It's just not there. Everything that has been found coincides with what God's Word says. And those are the facts. Nothing has been found that says Evolution happened. We came up out of primordial soup through some millions of years of evolution. It's just not there. It doesn't fit with God's Word or with science. All that's there is the preconceived idea that some men want to believe that there is nothing and no one out there greater than us to whom we must answer in the judgment. But even those men will one day bow their knee before Jesus and have to confess him as Lord, having recognized it. Because there will be no atheists on judgment day.
I hope it's been helpful. Hope it's been helpful to you. I hope answered some questions, maybe generated a few more. Write them down. We've got uh, second Sunday in November, and we'll do this again. Uh, please keep in mind there are only twelve of those second Sundays in November, and so uh, you know I won't always be able to answer all the questions that have been submitted. I'll do my best, but we'll have to work in there. I'm certain I'll have to. Uh, go through and pick out ones that I think will be most beneficial to the congregation if I have a choice. And so keep that in mind. Some questions I may ask you if it's all right if I just write you an answer. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to figure figure out how this works. Like I said before, first time I've ever tried anything like this. I hope it's helpful to us. I know I certainly enjoyed getting to consider these questions. I hope those of you who submitted them, your questions were answered. And I look forward to us doing this once a month. Talking about questions. In Acts chapter 2, there was a very important question asked. By the way, go ahead and pull out your songbooks. 